right, hope you have those Bibles with you this morning. Open them up, turn them on, turn them to Romans chapter 1. It is of no surprise to any of us that in Romans chapter 1, verse number 1 this morning, we will be journeying out of verse 1 today so we can all say amen. Romans chapter 1 begins, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul's three descriptions of himself move from a general description to a more specific one. He starts off and he says, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. At least that's how it's rendered in our, our translation. What we've discovered is that word bondservant comes from the Greek word doulos. Doulos does not mean servant. Doulos means slave. Of, there are at least a half dozen different Greek words that can be translated and understood as servant, and doulos isn't one of those words. In fact, doulos, when it's used in the New Testament, when it's used in other ancient Greek literature around the same time frame, Doulos always and only means slave. So what did we discover about a slave? A couple of weeks ago, we discovered that a slave was bought by a master. Uh, The slave existed to serve that master. And and the will of the slave belonged to the master. And so what Paul is saying in the very general sense is that he understands that he is owned by Jesus. That he exists to serve Jesus. And not only that, he no longer has a will and ambition of his own. His will and his ambition belongs to his Lord Jesus. So he transitions from a very general uh, statement of being a slave of Christ Jesus. And then he says to a, a called apostle. We learned last week that an apostle is someone who is sent by authority with a commission. And now his third description this morning, he says that he is set apart for the gospel of God. This is the, the specific focus of his calling or the commission to which Jesus gave him. And so by declaring that he has been set apart by the gospel, Paul is laying the foundation for the very theme of this letter. The main theme of the book of Romans is the good news that we are saved by grace and that is apart from any works of the law. And so the term that's used here is the Greek word euangelion or evangelion. That that term is used 60 times in this letter. 60 times we'll see the gospel referred to. The, The gospel simply means, that word simply means good news. Good news. Euangelion was a, a common term used in Paul's day. In fact, most of the Caesars claimed deity for themselves and they demanded worship from every person in the empire. And so what would often happen is that favorable events related to the throne were proclaimed to the citizens as euangelion, as good news. And so what would happen when when something favorable to the throne would occur, they'd send a town herald down to the center square, and that herald would declare, good news, good news. The emperor's wife has given birth to a son. And so what Paul is doing here, he's making certain that his readers understood 
that the good news that he was proclaiming was completely different than the trivial or the vain proclamations that they would often hear. So the fact that it is the gospel of God means that the source of this good news was God himself. It was not man's good news about man. Rather, it was God's good news for man. So it's called the gospel of God because it originates with God. This is not something manufactured or made up or invented by mankind. Later, when we get to verse number 9 next week, we'll see that it's referred to as the gospel of his son. Verse number 16 says it's the gospel of Christ. And so the gospel, the good news that we're going to talk about, originates with God and centers itself upon Jesus Christ. And so the good news is, for those that put their faith and trust in Jesus, then He will deliver us from our sin. He will remove the burden of our guilt, and He will give purpose to our lives. And that purpose is namely to glorify God and to make His glory known. So so verse number 1 and verse number 2, when you take them together, they reveal that Paul actually sees his, his mission his commission, his assignment as being an extension of Old Testament message. The Old Testament good news that was proclaimed. Look at them together. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So Paul's mission was not to proclaim some new theological concept. No, the gospel is contained in the Old Testament Scripture. There are some 300 prophecies about Jesus that are mentioned in the Old Testament. So much about the Messiah had already been revealed to the people. They already knew that he would have been uh, born of a virgin that his birthplace would have been in the town of Bethlehem, that he came from the, from the, from the lineage of David. Not only that, that, that he, would, he would die and his death would, would come via the cross. Even more so, we know from Old Testament prophecies that his side or his body would be pierced, but his bones would remain unbroken. So the Gospel of the New Testament is the same good news which was promised from the Old Testament. And so that means that Jesus is both the subject of the good news and the author of the good news. So make no mistake, the Gospel began long before the birth of Jesus occurred. The Gospel began long, long ago in the mind and the plan of our Heavenly Father. And Paul is making the point that the gospel is not some new or unexpected development in the plan of God. Rather, it is something that had already been promised beforehand, been prophesied about in the Old Testament. So Paul's roots to his commission go beyond the prophets. They go, his roots go beyond the patriarchs. The roots to the mission of Paul's calling reaches all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, 
It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The the proclamation of Jesus, our Messiah, goes all the way to Genesis chapter 3. Let's keep going in our text, because look at verses 3 and 4. We see here that it says, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we just noted, the subject of the gospel is Jesus himself. It is God's good news concerning his son. And so here, we're going to learn about the identity of Jesus. Because according to to verses 3 and 4, Paul's responsibility was to preach or was to proclaim that Jesus had uh, uh, this human nature and he also had a divine nature. These verses affirm the new natures of Jesus, his humanity and his divinity. The theological term that we use to describe that is called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. The two natures of Christ, fully God and fully man. And Paul understood that his mission, part of it, was to proclaim that reality to the people. So verse 3 stresses his humanity. Verse 4 will stress his deity. So in verse 3, although the gospel of God was eternal in the mind and in the plan of God, the title Son is reserved as an incarnational term related to Jesus. Which means, what am I saying by that? It means that the title was given to Jesus in all of its fullness only after Jesus placed upon himself the robe of humanity. So as you read and as you study the scriptures, it is abundantly clear that Jesus is God. And eternally, Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. So there's never been a time when God didn't exist, and there'll never be a time that he won't ever exist. And so what this is saying is that the birth of our Lord, Jesus set aside the full expression of his divinity, and he humbled himself, and he submitted to the will of his Father and the plan of the Father, and he took on himself the the robe of humanity. He clothed himself in in human flesh and skin. That's why Paul explains it like this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. The word is doulos. Therefore, Jesus took upon himself the form of a... Yeah, you're paying attention. Congratulations. That would have been really awkward if I went and it would have been silent. I think we'd have to back up to verse 1, part 1, all over again. Yeah, he took upon himself the form of a slave. Notice in his high priestly prayer that Jesus says to his father in John chapter 17, watch this, in John chapter 17, verse number 1, Jesus spoke these things 
and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Then in verse number five, hang on. Then in verse number five, uh, he goes on to saying, now, Father, glorify me together with you, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see it? There it is. Jesus has existed for all eternity. Which means, because Jesus is part of the Godhead, not only has God always existed, so has Jesus and so has the Holy Spirit. And this is critical for our understanding. I hope that you can get this. This is called the, the, the aseity or the self-existence of God. The self-existence of God. In fact, here's my plug for you. Wednesday night in this very place, we are doing a study through the attributes of God. And I'm looking around, and I'm just going to say, I don't see a lot of your faces on Wednesday night. I wish that this place would be full on Wednesday night. I pray that this place will be full on Wednesday night. And we have a lot of different opportunities to offer you on Wednesday night. We have grief share that's happening, uh, apologetics for, for, for women that is happening. Uh, we have marriage enrichment that is happening. And in this place, I'm just going to say it, we have the most important study that you can ever undertake as happening here. There is no greater study that you could do in your life than studying the very character, essence, and nature of God. That is the most foundational we cannot truly understand how God made us in his own image until we first understand who he is. And that's what we're seeking to do on Wednesday nights because our entire worldview is governed by our understanding of God. It shapes everything. A high and holy view and understanding of God will lead to a high and holy view of how we live and how we worship. A low and baseless view and understanding of God will reflect itself in how we conduct ourselves in this world. So I think it's perhaps the most important study that we could ever take on as children of God is understanding the character, the nature, and essence of God. So I invite you to come and be a part, 6 o'clock right here, from 5 o'clock to 5.45, we will feed you over in the other building. If you need to grab something because you're running late, we'll even have t- takeout to go orders ready so you can grab a tray and come over and go to your class and eat and learn together. Now with that being said, I want you to notice what happens in John chapter 1. Because John writes in John chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Always existed. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. And then the most beautiful thing happens. In accordance to the divine plan of redemption, 
And this is the plan which Jesus himself and the Holy Spirit were part of the creation of this plan of redemption. Then the most beautiful thing happens because Jesus takes on flesh and dwells amongst us. It says in verse number 14, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, he took on flesh, he dwelt among us. He still possessed some of his divine glory, but the glory that he retained was veil in his humanity. So verse 3 stresses the, the humanity of Jesus, while verse 4 stresses his divinity. It does so by saying, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The most conclusive and irrefutable evidence of Jesus' divinity was given with power by the resurrection from the dead. I love how it says in Acts chapter 13, verses 29 and 30. It says, When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Man, the supreme demonstration of his ability to conquer death reveals his divine nature. Because Power over death belongs to God because God is the giver of life. And then the next phrase, it says, with power, by the resurrection from the dead. And that next phrase says, according to the spirit of holiness. According to the spirit of, of holiness is another way uh, to say according to the nature or the working of the Holy Spirit. See, in his incarnation jesus was conceived by the power of the holy spirit and in his resurrection jesus was raised from the dead in accordance to the the power of the holy spirit or as paul renders it here in this the spirit of holiness so the power of the holy spirit manifested itself at the incarnation of jesus and at his resurrection but make no mistake, the power of the Holy Spirit was involved all in Jesus' life and all of his humanity as he walked upon this earth as he served God faithfully. Jesus is fully man, a descendant of David, and Jesus is fully God, declared to be Son of God. And throughout his ministry, both his humanity and his divinity were often displayed at the same time. I'll show you one. Turn with me to Mark, if you would. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We're going to see one of those occasions where we see both the humanity and the divinity of our Lord at play. Mark chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse number 35. Says, on that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he, he was, and other boats were with him. 
And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. In other words, that boat is starting to sink. And then it says, um, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up, he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In his humanity, Jesus was exhausted, worn out, tired, laid down to go to rest. Just as anybody else would be exhausted and worn out over a hard day's labor. But in his humanity, he was exhausted. But in his divinity, he was able to speak and instantly calm the wind and the sea. You can even think about his crucifixion. You see both the humanity and his divinity at the crucifixion. In his humanity... Oh, he was in agony, pain, bloodied, beaten, bruised because he was human. But in his divinity, he was able to speak and grant forgiveness and salvation to the repentant thief who was also crucified nearby. The humanity and the divinity of our Lord fully on display. I love how, how, how Paul captures all of this as he brings this thought to a conclusion from verses 3 and 4. As if to summarize his theological description of the Son of God in verses 3 and 4, Paul ends verse number 4 with a clear and concise identification that he is Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, those words pack a powerful punch. Those three titles pull everything that he said about Jesus together in a very beautiful way. Start with Jesus. Jesus is the proper name of the incarnate Son of God. So, so Jesus calls attention to his human nature as one coming from the line of David. It also points us to his work as Messiah. And so you have Jesus, his proper name, and then we see the title Christ. Christ is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew term Messiah, which means anointed one. So Jesus, anointed one. And then we see Lord. Lord, the literal meaning to that is owner, master. So he is Jesus because he saves his people from their sin. He is Christ because he has been anointed by God as King of Kings. And he is Lord because he's God. And he sovereignly rules and reigns over everything. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul goes on to say, look at verse 5. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom 
you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Man, notice a, a very important word here. Notice how he uses the word we. We. He says, through whom we have received. Paul now speaks of all believers, not just himself. And notice what we have received. Those that have put their faith in Jesus. He says two things here. We've received grace and apostleship. Let's start with grace. All who put their faith and trust in Jesus, submitting their lives, their wills unto Him, they have received God's glorious grace. They've received His favor, His mercy, His love, His forgiveness, His redemption, His salvation, all because of His grace. Ephesians chapter 2 declares it like this. It says in verse number 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not only have we received the beautiful gift of God's grace, we've also received apostleship. Bear with me now. That term gets misused a lot in today's church. But apostleship, what does it mean to be an apostle? One who by authority has been sent with a commission. That is a lowercase a, apostleship. We're not talking about the office of apostle. The, 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 the role of being an apostle was reserved for the 12 original plus Paul Right, we talked about that uh, as well last week. But, so not only have we received God's grace, we've also received his apostleship. And so we've received a special mission by God, by his power. God has charged us as his children to carry out a very specific task. And so what is the, the task? What is our mission here? Paul identifies it, and he calls it the obedience of faith. Uh, so the message of the gospel is to call people to the obedience of faith, which is used here as a synonym for salvation. It's to call people unto salvation. So all of God's children has received an, an apostleship assignment from the King of Kings. I mean, that's the Great Commission. To go, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. That is the responsibility of all of God's children. So the message of the gospel is to call people to obedience of faith. That's the message. Salvation does not come by baptism. It doesn't come from communion, nor will you find it in a confirmation process. Salvation doesn't come by church membership or church attendance. Salvation doesn't come by keeping the Ten Commandments 
By living in accordance to the Beatitudes or striving to live up to the Sermon of the Mount? doesn't work that way. Salvation isn't obtained by being morally upright, respectable, or generous to other people. <laughs> no. Salvation comes by grace. By grace. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. So in reality, I love how he says the obedience of faith. I think it's important because in reality, true faith and heartfelt obedience are inseparable. In other words, true faith and obedience are two sides to the coin of salvation. You can't separate the two. In chapter 6, Paul will write in verse number 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Obedience and salvation are linked together. One example that comes from a, the great chapter of faith in Scripture. In, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, we see the example of Abraham. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse number 8 says that by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to the place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. So there it is. Abraham gives us the example. By faith, what did he do? He obeyed. See, here's important to understand. One cannot truly accept Jesus Christ without accepting him both as Savior and Lord. It's not an either-or thing. Jesus isn't either your Savior or he's your Lord. It's a both-and scenario. Jesus is both Lord and Savior. And what happens today is a lot of people want the benefits of salvation without the requirements of submission. And it doesn't work that way. We accept him as Savior by trusting in his redemptive work. We accept him as Lord as fully committing ourselves to being obedient to do what he's called us to do. So those who come to Christ by the obedience of faith are, are the called of Jesus Christ. That's the language that Paul's using here. Verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is not referring to the general call for mankind to believe. Last week, we talked about three calls that are used in Scripture. There's a general call or the external call, and then there's the internal or the salvific call, and then there's a third one, a special specific calling, an assignment, the commission that Jesus gives his children to carry out through the equipping of the Holy Spirit. If you have a blank look on your face because of this, you don't remember it from last week, or you weren't here, check out that message. It will explain it all right there. But, but here, Paul isn't talking about the external call. He's talking about the internal call or the effectual call that produced salvation. And so throughout the epistles that will come through in the New Testament, References to being called to salvation are always effectual calls that produce salvation. They're always referring to that internal call to repent and to believe. Paul 
gave us an amazing example to, to witness and a pattern to, to follow. Paul, in his life, the view that he had of himself made all the difference in his world. And here we find ourselves nearly 2,000 years later, and it's still making all the difference in our world. I mean, imagine if we had a like mindset of Paul. Just think about it. What if we truly understood and saw ourselves as being purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, being completely owned by God and empowered by His Holy Spirit? I mean, if we fully understood that, don't you think it would change how we live and what we do? Those that believe in Him, it's not about us anymore. We're slaves unto the King. Our will it is the will and the ambition of our Lord. Our purpose of life is to serve Him. We exist only for that purpose. If we had no purpose in serving Him, then God would just call us home to be with Him. But here's the deal. The moment you confess your faith and trust in Jesus, guess what? God left you behind in this world. You ever wonder why? Why didn't he just take me up then? Because he has a purpose. He has a plan. He has an assignment for each and every one of his children to carry out for his glory so that his glory can be made known among the nations. Paul understood this ever so clearly. It shaped everything that he did with his life. Imagine if we would understand it just as clearly as Paul did. Do we realize just how much we are loved by God? Do you? Notice what he says next. Look at verse 7. He says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three applications of this verse to us, and I will give them to you ever so quickly. Number one. First, we are beloved. Beloved. That's the title. That's the, that's the word that Paul uses. The word beloved from the Greek word agapetos. Agapetos. We know the Greek word love, one of the words is agape. Right? Agape. The agape love is the highest, purest, most holy form of love that there is. And so God is identifying his children as beloved, which means we are loved by God in the highest, holiest, and most pure way God loves you. Notice that that Paul doesn't mention a believer's love for God. Rather, he's talking about God's love for the believer. If you're a child of God, then you need to know that God loves you. And how that doesn't produce an amen, I don't understand. Loved by God. Valued by Him. Precious to Him. Of great worth and importance unto Him. So much so that we get the privilege of approaching his throne through his son to present our request unto the Father. 
He wants to know it all. What do we take to him? Do we bother him with the little things of this world? Or do we just take to him the major things? Let me help you out. Compared to God, your majors are minors. Everything is minor to him. So we're to take it all to him. Because he loves us. You're loved by God. Second, you're called as saints. Notice the repetition of that word called. We saw it in verse number one. Paul was called to be an apostle. Verse number six, the believers were called of Jesus Christ. And now we see in verse number seven, believers are called saints. That word saints is a Greek word, hagios. Hagios. Uh, That word saint is also closely connected to the word sanctify. Sanctify comes from the Greek word hagios. So saint and sanctify go together. What they mean, it means uh, being set apart. means being separated, dedicated to God, considered holy. So, so God's view of his children is that they are saints. They're set apart, dedicated to him, considered holy. In the Old Testament, many things and many people were separated by God and for his purpose. Things like the tabernacle the temple, even all the furnishings within them, set apart, dedicated completely unto God. You see, like the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, set apart, sanctified by God. You see the tribe of uh, Levi, they were set apart uh, to be the priesthood. The nation of Israel, God set that nation apart to be his people. And if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you too have been set apart in this world to belong to him, to be different. This is no longer our world. Heaven is our home. We're aliens in this place. We shouldn't be too comfortable and stuff in this world because this isn't home. We have another home. So we're, we're ambassadors. Our home is heaven. We're, we're sent by God with a mission. So we represent where we're from. And so that's who we are as God's children. And so how is it possible that he would identify us as saints? Notice we're not, uh, we're not called because we are saints. Rather, we are saints because we are called by him. In other words, We're not called saints because we are holy and righteous all on our own. No, we put our faith and trust in Jesus so God has separated us from this world. We are dedicated unto Him and we're called and we're considered as saints. Someone who belongs to the Father. Lastly, we are recipients of grace and peace. Amen. The only people who can receive the marvelous blessing of both grace and peace are those who are the beloved, the called, his saints. Grace and peace go naturally and beautifully together in a sense of cause and effect. See, because of God's grace that comes upon us, because of his taking away of our sin, 
and, and making us the, the recipients of his love and his mercy. Because of that, then his peace overwhelms our being. That's the only way that we can have peace. The only people who can receive the marvelous blessing of grace and peace in their lives are those individuals that will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Master, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So the question that we end on today is, do you have the grace and peace of God in your life? Do you? Do you belong to him? Submit and surrender your all unto our Lord. If so, are you striving to be faithful to what he's called you to do? God not only gives us a specific calling, a task for us to carry out for the kingdom of God, God also gives us his spirit to dwell within us, to empower us and enable us to live out and to carry through with the calling that he has placed upon us. He doesn't leave us on our own to figure it out and struggle. He blesses us in every way imaginable. Do you have the grace and peace of God? If not, is the Holy Spirit leading you today by grace, through faith, to receive salvation? If you belong to him, are you seeking to serve him in the fullness of the expression of the Holy Spirit working in you? Let's pray together, church. Father, I thank you for today, for this church, for the beautiful privilege of opening your word Father, as we go on this long journey through the book of Romans, Father, may we not get weary uh, of, of the undertaking, but may we find excitement, encouragement, and great joy as we study your word together. Father, in this place, there are those that believe in you, that need to confess sins, uh, to, to seek forgiveness, to make commitments, that, that, that they need to, to trust, to surrender, and to give their all of service unto you. Like, we get that. We understand that. Every person in this room has work that needs to be done in our lives. Father, we ask that your spirit would move among us, guiding and convicting us in every way. Make known unto us the decision that we need to make. Father, for those that don't belong to you yet, Pray that you would grant them salvation. That your spirit would awaken their souls. That your grace might be extended unto them. God, help us all to understand that Jesus changes everything. And for those that confess that they believe in him, that means that we receive him as Savior and we submit to him as Lord. Help us to understand that faith and obedience go together. And where we have failed to obey you, Father, may we confess that unto you. May you be pleased by what you see among us in this response. In Christ's name I pray.